you would take your Bibles, please, and open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we come to a familiar story in the life of Jesus when he entered Jerusalem on what is known as Palm Sunday. But before we get to that story, I want to remind you of something we've learned in Mark. Hopefully we've learned it before, but I think we've really seen it in the Gospel of Mark. And it's something we should know as we study, as we read the Bible, and that is the importance of context. You can't simply take a passage, just open up your Bible and take a verse out and have that mean whatever it is you want it to mean. Um, And I was reminded of it this week. I came across a video of a well-known Christian speaker who was making in my opinion, a weak argument for unbiblical Christian behavior. He was saying, I think this is okay, and I think his argument was quite weak. But in the course of his lecture, he was in the pulpit, but it sounded more like a lecture than a sermon, he challenged those who disagreed with him on this particular issue, um, almost mocking them by saying, oh, they say they just want to do what the Bible says. Well, he continued, Jesus said that if you want to be his disciple, you, you have to sell all your possessions and give what you get to the poor, then take up your cross and follow him. Who has done that? Have you done that? He asked in what I would say was a mocking tone. Wait a minute, we've studied this recently, haven't we? Um, yeah, the story of the rich young ruler. And it was to this man, and this man only, a man who trusted in his wealth and possessions, that Jesus said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Jesus said this to one person, not to everyone listening, and not to everyone who puts their trust in him. And yet, having said that, um, the Christian community, I would say more than any other has been marked by charity and giving to the poor. And here we're reminded of uh, the last last parable that Jesus spoke in Matthew 25. Uh, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will say, "When when did we ever do these things? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The Christian community has been responsible for building hospitals and orphanages, uh, homes for unwed mothers, leper colonies, schools, and more. But Jesus did not say to all of us, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He said that to one person. And to take that out of context, I think, is really disingenuous. And frankly, it's... It's quite appalling. I did find it interesting that this Christian speaker didn't say, oh, and how many of you have taken up your cross? Because that is something Jesus spoke to his disciples. Um, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, so Jesus is speaking to the disciples and the crowd, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This came after his first announcement of his coming passion. And as we saw, the idea of denying yourself doesn't mean you're like, oh, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. 
It means denying the story that you want to tell, the narrative that you have. Uh, right before this, Peter said, yeah, you're not going to suffer. That's not going to happen. And Jesus says, you need to deny the story that you want to tell. It's an ongoing problem during the ministry of Jesus. And I would say that we see it again in our passage today. So, Mark 11. But one more thing before we begin. Up to this point, the Gospel of Mark has not been chronological. It does start with John the Baptist and then Jesus being baptized. But the the various incidents and parables and things we think are not told uh, chronologically. This will change now at the beginning of chapter 11 because this is the beginning of the Passion Week. And so day by day, up to the crucifixion and finally the resurrection, um, from chapter 11 on, the events discussed are in fact given chronologically. The end of chapter 10 is in Jericho, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Jericho is 846 feet below sea level. It is the lowest city in the world. Jerusalem, on the other hand, about 50 miles away, is almost 2,500 feet above sea level. So it's a a change of over 3,500 feet. As one travels from Jericho, which is dusty, desert, hot, that's why you, we said, you know, Bartimaeus had a cloak. You don't need a cloak at any time where you're in Jericho. People would travel up. They would walk up. And when they got to the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, then suddenly things change. Things turn green. And they come over the hill and they see the beautiful city of Jerusalem. Titus has spoken to us on some of the songs of ascents. These are songs that the pilgrims would sing as they're coming up to Jerusalem. And as they get up there, one could imagine that they are filled with joy as they see the beautiful city. Jerusalem was a place where God had chosen to put his name and his presence. It's the place where the temple was, where the daily sacrifices were to be given, where people could worship God, seek his forgiveness, and have fellowship with him. It is a place also where they would remember. They would remember freedom and hope, deliverance from Egypt. And so pilgrims are on the way up and they are singing. They are filled with joy. And there is a large crowd with Jesus as he comes up because Passover is almost there. It's going to happen this week. And so people are traveling to Jerusalem so they can celebrate the, sa- the Passover and what God has done for his people. So one can imagine there's an air of excitement. Verse number one. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, okay, this is giving us a geographical location. The Mount of Olives is outside Jerusalem, and there are two towns. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem, and Bethphage is in between. Okay, it's in between Bethany and Jerusalem. So as they approached, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, just, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what, why are you doing that? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street and tied to a doorway. So as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? 
They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Some things to consider. Jesus knows what the disciples will find when they get to Bethphage. They will find a colt that no one has ever ridden on. Well, how, how does he know that no one has ever ridden on? He has supernatural knowledge. This colt is untamed, it is unbroken, and yet this will be the animal that Jesus will ride into Jerusalem. He knows where it's going to be, that it's going to be tied up, and that they might be challenged. It's like, hey, what are you doing? You know, that's not your animal. Why are you untying it? And then they were to answer, the Lord needs it. And this may say, sound strange to some, like me. If he's the Lord, he doesn't need anything. Uh, there's, I think there's a sermon or two in that particular phrase. But something that I don't know if I've just skipped over it over the years or I'd, that I didn't remember seeing, um, they promise that they will return the colt shortly. I don't ever remember seeing that, that the Lord needs it and he will return it shortly. He's not keeping it. Um, he needs it for the ride into Jerusalem, um, but he's not going to keep it. And then we see that things happen uh, exactly as Jesus told them it would. Verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the part of the story I think that people remember most. And yet I think they make uh, several mistakes uh, in understanding it. I've mentioned several Sundays ago that anachronism is a problem that historians always have to avoid. That somehow we project backwards uh, either an object or an event, uh, a custom, but also an understanding. We think, we may think that people knew things then that we know now, and that certainly was not the case. So we know that Jesus is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, that he is the Messiah. We imagine that the crowd knew that as well. And I would say they did not. And in fact, their actions are not based on, oh, this is the Messiah, but rather it's based on how they thought the story would go, on the narrative and how they thought things would happen. They certainly didn't think, oh, here comes someone who is going to die for our sins. This is someone who is the Lamb of God who will be put to death that our sins may be forgiven. Here is the servant of God described in Isaiah 53, which we sang in the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, and we heard in the promise of forgiveness. This is who it's talking about. No, they did not know that. What many today don't know is that a similar event happened to, like this about 200 years before this. Um, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. He died suddenly, and so his empire was divided up into four parts. And the one part that uh, belonged to a general, uh, Seleucus, became known as the Seleucid Empire. And Israel was part of that. And so they controlled the Jews. 
they desecrated the temple. They put up an idol in the temple. They sacrificed a pig in the, on the temple altar. Just horrible things. And so there is a revolt that happens. And it's led by someone named Judas Maccabeus or Judas Maccabee. He was a priest. His dad was a priest. He led a successful revolt. He helped to cleanse the temple of all the images that were put there by the foreign rulers. The Jewish holiday Hanukkah comes from when Judas Maccabeus came in and cleansed the temple. Uh, Hanukkah, Hanukkah means dedication, and it commemorates the restoration of Jewish worship. As Judas entered into Jerusalem, people waved ivy and palm branches, and they sang songs of praise. So what you have with Jesus entering Jerusalem, I think in many people's minds, is, oh, this is just like what happened back when Judas Maccabee delivered us from the Greeks. Judas Maccabee would become the first king of the Maccabean dynasty, which lasted 100 years. So what are people thinking on that Palm Sunday? What are they praising God for? A suffering Messiah? I don't think so. No, a king who would drive out the Romans the way that Judas Maccabeus had driven out the Greeks, the Seleucid Empire. I don't know if you noticed, but what Gia read to us today, Psalm 118, is part of what the crowd was saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Because people are quoting Psalm 118, I think they get the wrong impression that they think this is some type of religious invocation. And, and part of the problem is here in the West, in the modern West, religion is just a small part of our life. It's a separate part of our life. For the rest of the world, certainly in the ancient world, religion covered, colored everything. There was no separate part of your life that you knew as religion. Okay. So when the crowd shouts, Hosanna, or Lord save us, now, okay, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest, we shouldn't think, oh, they understood what was going on. They knew Jesus was coming in, and he was going to be put to death, uh, then he would be buried, and then he would be raised on the third day, and he brings salvation for his people. No. We've seen thus far in the Gospel of Mark that people consistently get it wrong, especially the disciples. They were the ones who were closest to Jesus. They get it wrong. They failed to recognize his unique character. They didn't recognize the nature of the kingdom of God. They didn't see Jesus in the context of the Old Testament. They saw him in the context of their own stories, their own narratives. And the result is, at least up to this point, the disciples would say to Jesus, yeah, you're, you're doing it all wrong. I, I wouldn't do it that way. Okay? So, you remember the Syrophoenician woman who comes to have her daughter uh, exercised to get this demon out of her daughter. And Jesus uses language that some might say is highly inappropriate, even racist language. Yeah, Jesus, that's not the way I would do it. If somebody comes to you, you don't push them away. You don't make it hard for them. He's like, yeah, come on, come on. Join the kingdom. Or the man who was deaf and speech impaired. Um, Jesus stuck his fingers in the person's ear. And he said, yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, yeah. 
If I had to touch him, I would just lay my hand on him, but otherwise I would just say, be healed of your deafness. And then he spit on his fingers and then put it on the man's tongue. It's like, totally gross, I'm not doing that. I wouldn't do it that way. The feeding of the 4,000 versus the 5,000. Somebody brings some bread and Jesus prays, gives thanks. He gives it to the disciples and they go out and distribute it. And then somebody brings fish. And then Jesus prays again and breaks it up and gives it to the disciples and they they share it with the 4,000 people. It's like, Jesus, couldn't we just have like one big prayer, you know, for all the food? Why? It seems really inefficient. People ask for a miraculous sign, and Jesus is like, I'm not doing that. And it's like, why not? Why, why can't you do so? Just do a little miracle so that these people will believe. The disciples, and I think sometimes we're guilty of this, would say, I have a better vision of what the kingdom of God should look like and how it should be at work in the world. And if we doubt that they misunderstood that, how about the argument between the disciples about who is the greatest? And then James and John saying, I want to sit on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom. They're thinking earthly terms. Jesus on the throne, one on his left, one on his right. Okay? So now here comes Jesus into Jerusalem. And like, yeah, I think we'd prefer a big horse, a war horse, you know, a big stallion, but... Okay, it's a donkey, that, you know, a colt. We, we can work with that, okay? But here it is. It's a reenactment of what Judas Maccabeus had done two centuries before. I said that the disciples failed to see Jesus in the Old Testament context. How about Zechariah 9, 9? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They didn't see that, in fact, he was fulfilling what had been said in the Old Testament. What about the crowd? We know the disciples are missing, but how about, how about the, the crowd? We might say the greeting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. If you read Psalm 129 at the end, um, the greetings are given, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, so we bless you in the name of the Lord. And you can go back to Ruth chapter 2, when Ruth is gleaning in the fields, and Boaz shows up to check on his workers. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Now, we might think, well, that's a really religious thing to say. It was the way that people greeted one another. Blessed is he who comes is the way of saying welcome. You are blessed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You are welcome. You're welcome to come into Jerusalem. The closest thing we have that's still around today is when somebody sneezes, people will say, bless you. Uh, back in the day, people would say, God bless you, but we don't want to say that because you're trying to impose your religious beliefs on me. So we just say, bless you. So, well, that sounds kind of religious. Uh, no, it, it's a way that people used to speak. The word Hosanna um, 
It's not translated as Hosanna in Psalm 118, but it is, O Lord, save us, and I have in parenthesis, now. It's a very, almost a demanding, you know, imperative, save us now. And I would suggest to you that they're not saying, save us from our sins. They're saying, save us from these Romans. Drive them out so that we can once again return to our former glory. This is how they thought the story should go. They are excited and thrilled at the possibilities. Here's like the second coming of Judas Maccabeus. This is the guy, Judas drove out the Seleucid, Jesus will drive out the Romans. And they are wrong. We've already seen it, but in the chapters that follow, Mark will show us what Jesus meant by being king. And the people didn't get it. And that's why in less than a week, they will call for him to be put to death. It's interesting that though the crowd shouted from Psalm 118, which has been known now in the church as a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah, um, there's great joy in it, which the people remembered. But there's something they didn't remember. Psalm 118, I will give you thanks for you answered me, you have become my salvation. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. That's Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So this sounds very, doesn't it sound like Palm Sunday? You know, you get the branches, join in the procession. But if you know Psalm 118, or if you remember what Gia read, I've skipped a verse. And I've skipped the verse because I think the people skipped the verse. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Jesus will be rejected. Yeah, that's, that doesn't fit into the story. And they conveniently forget about that, and they're all excited because now here comes Jesus. He's going to be the king, and he's going to drive out the Roman occupying forces. Mark tells us that in verse number 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So it's, it's the end of the day, and so rather, he looks around, surveys, and then he decides to go back to Bethany uh, to spend the night. By the way, Bethany is the town where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And so it's very possible that he, in fact, stayed at their house. And now we come to two, two stories. One is wrapped around the other. One we misunderstand, well, both we misunderstand in different ways. So, to understand the middle story, we have to understand the first and the last. It, that is around it. Verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, 
May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This is the first incident, and it brackets, brackets the second one. Um, note, Jesus is leaving Bethany. As I said, he probably spent the night at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree and goes there to see if it has any fruit. Um, it has no fruit because it's not the season for figs. This is something I think, at least since I've come to L.A., totally lost the sense of seasons. When I was growing up in the Philippines, we knew, oh, it's mango season, okay, um, season for santo. I mean, there, you knew what time of the year it was by the fruits that were coming out at that time. It's not fig season, okay? It's not time for figs to be on the tree. It's green, it's in leaf, that comes first, and then the fruits will come later. Jesus speaks to the tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Some translations have the heading, Jesus curses the fig tree. But later in the story, we will see that Peter says to him, the fig tree you cursed. So when Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, it's a curse. Okay? This seems really arbitrary, cruel. Jesus seems petty and petulant. It's not the season for figs. Why would you expect there to be figs on the tree? And then to curse a tree simply because it doesn't have what you want. It, it seems like a, a gross uh, use of power. It's like the arbitrary. Yeah, I didn't get what I wanted, and so curse you because there are no figs. The disciples heard what Jesus said. That's really important because it will come up again in the second part of the story. But it must have really puzzled them. This man who had more compassion on people than they did, because they're like, send the people home. We don't have enough food for them. And Jesus is like, listen, they're, they're tired. They've been with me for X number of days. Um, we, need, we need to feed them. He had compassion. He healed people. He comforted people. He was very tender-hearted. And now he curses a tree? Why? Now we come to the second incident, which I think is more familiar to us. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, this is from Isaiah 56, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is from Jeremiah 7. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus returns to Jerusalem from Bethany, and he comes to the temple area. He had looked at it the day before. Okay? So the day before was Sunday, Palm Sunday. This is now Monday of Holy Week, of the Passion Week. And he begins driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It's almost Passover. 
it's, this is Monday of Passover week, okay? In a few days, it's going to be Passover. And so Jews from all over the Mediterranean basin have come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. <clears throat> when you come from a long distance, you cannot realistically bring animals for sacrifice to the temple. First of all, the animals have to be without blemish. And let's say you leave home in Italy with a bull that you want to sacrifice at the temple. It's without blemish. But by the time you get to Jerusalem, it's all banged up from the, tr- the journey. You can't, you can't use it as a sacrifice. So if you have a bull back in Italy, you sell it, get the coins, and then you go to Jerusalem. You go to the temple area. You buy one there an approved bull that the chief priests have approved and then you can sacrifice that. So there's a thriving business here. Also there's something, you had to pay a temple tax and it had to be with a shekel. Well, you know, the rest of the empire don't do shekels. So you have to have your money changed into something so you can pay the temple tax with the right currency. So it's a thriving business. And Jesus drives these people out. And something else, in verse number 16, he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. It seems that the temple area was huge, that people, if you wanted to get outside of town, you could sort of take a shortcut through the temple court and then get out like to Bethany or Bethphage or whatever, to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is like, no shortcuts here. You're not cutting through the temple grounds just so you don't have to go around to get to wherever it is you want to go. Jesus would not allow it. But then Jesus does something. He's not simply a person who acts. He also speaks. He teaches. He teaches from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. The quote from Jeremiah, I think, is more intriguing, at least to me, of the two, as it was originally spoken in the temple area. When Jeremiah spoke these words, some 600, almost 700 years earlier. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. And so we have a message. And then later on, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, bears my name, and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You see, the temple in Jeremiah's time and in Jesus' time was sort of a safety zone. You could do all sorts of wicked things outside, and then you get in the temple, you have sanctuary, you're safe. Okay? And you can do certain things because you're in the temple courts. And Jesus says, no. No. This is my Father's house, a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. The religious authorities are unhappy about this. It's not clear, but I think they may have been making some money on the side from all this business that was going on. But they are afraid, and it keeps them from doing anything because the crowd listens to Jesus, and they're amazed at his teaching. 
Then Jesus goes back to Bethany. We come to verse number 20. Now it is Tuesday morning. So Sunday, we have the entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Monday, we have Jesus cleansing the temple after he curses the fig tree. Now it is Tuesday of Holy Week, of Passion Week. Verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. They remember, remember the disciples heard what Jesus said. This wasn't something he muttered under his breath, like, you know, may you never have fruit again. I mean, they heard him say this. And now the tree's dead. It's withered up. What's going on here? What, what, what is going on here? We are told in Mark 4, 34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. And as we've seen, his parables are not merely stories. At certain points, there would like be brief sayings, but also in his actions. So when he fed the 5,000, for example, that was a parable. It was an illustration of what God had done for his people in the wilderness. There's something for them to learn from that. And I would submit to you that the cursing of the fig tree was a parable in action. It's not a verbal parable. It is a parable in action. Say, okay, Damon, I'll buy it. What is the point? What was the lesson? To what truth did this point? Well, stop and think a minute. And again, context is important. What happens after Jesus curses the fig tree? He goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple and says, this is to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. Jesus goes to the place that is to be a place of sacrifice, a place of worship, and he judges it. He judges it. I don't think that the point that Jesus was trying to make was, yeah, don't mix religion and business. You've sort of commercialized the Jewish religion and you need to stop that. That's always a danger, without question. You know, the idea that somehow uh, a religion can be commercialized, it can be sort of a profit-making enterprise. Um, but I don't think that's the main point, at least for the disciples. See, the other people didn't hear him curse the tree. The disciples heard it. And they were with him when he cleansed the temple. And now the two incidents come together. His cursing of the fig tree and his judging of the temple of God because of what people have done to it. One illustrates the other. Jesus wasn't just petulant and petty and like, well, I wanted a fig. You know, I was really jonesing for a fig and there are no figs, so curse you tree. No. It is a parable about what he's about to do when he goes into Jerusalem to the temple and judges it. Jesus wants his disciples to know that judgment is surely coming. Is Jerusalem going to be judged? Well, I don't know. Look at the fig tree. Yeah. Jerusalem is going to be judged. After a ministry of healing and teaching, 
feeding and simply loving people into the kingdom of God, now Jesus acts in judgment, which will lead to his death in several days. When he pronounces judgment, yeah, people aren't going to put up with that, and he will be crucified. But there's more. And again, context is all important. Look at verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven forgive your sins. Again, context is really important. What is Jesus saying here? That our faith is to be in God. Our trust is to be in God. In our day, I would say that for many Christians, their faith is not in God. Their faith is in their faith in God. Faith in faith. And no, we are to have, we are to put our faith in God. And so people who say you must have faith, they take this passage and they take it out of context. Listen, whatever you ask for in prayer, if you believe, you'll get it. What is Jesus talking about here? What is the mountain? Verse 23, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, what mountain are we talking about? We're talking about the temple, the temple mount. The temple is on a mountain in the midst of Jerusalem. Jesus has proclaimed judgment against the temple and against the Jewish people for the rebellion. What did Jesus do to the temple? He judged it by cleansing it. So the issue is judgment and trusting God that God in his time will bring judgment is what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. But, lest we think, ooh, this is great. If I have enough faith, I can pray and God will bring judgment on whoever I'm praying about. That's not the last word, is it? Verse 25 and 26. And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. The last word is not judgment. The last word is forgiveness. Lest we think, this is it. I've got this powerful weapon. I can pray fire down from heaven. I can pray for judgment. In fact, what we hear is a word of forgiveness. Are we not surprised as it's become so familiar to us? that Jesus could say on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We need to remember what God has done for us, that he has forgiven us. It's what we say in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In studying this passage, I, I just found it to be truly instructive and amazing in many ways because it reminds me at least of the importance of context. If you do not consider the context, you will come away with a very, very different picture of what is recorded here. You'll think, oh, and in fact, many people refer to Palm Sunday as the triumphal entry. The NIV has the heading there, the triumphal entry. Triumph of what? 
the crowd thought this is sort of the second coming of Judas Maccabeus. He drove out the Greeks. This guy's going to drive out the Romans. This is great. Lord, save us now. Hosanna. That's not what's going on. Because we've seen, if, if you've been with us going through Mark, that people consistently got wrong what Jesus was trying to do. The people think liberation is at hand, political liberation. And they reenact what had happened two centuries before when Judas Maccabeus entered Jerusalem. That's the biggie. I mean, I think people get Palm Sunday so wrong. But then what about the fig tree? And I must confess, this is something that has bothered me over the years because it just seems out of character with Jesus. I mean, I can't imagine Jesus cursing anyone, let alone a tree, for not having something that it shouldn't have in the first place. But we can't see it by itself. We have to see it in the context of Jesus cleansing the temple. He isn't simply exercising power and saying, curse you tree and it withers up. Um, No. It is a demonstration. It's a parable of his judgment that is going to come on Jerusalem. And then people see the cleansing of the temple as, oh, yes, don't don't mix religion and business. That's, That's not a good practice. Jesus was opposed to it. Yeah, I can see that on some level uh, the faith may in fact be commercialized and people try to make money off of God, if you wish. Um, But I don't think that's what's going on here. Jesus is speaking words of judgment. And then what he says about faith, people take that out of context like, ooh, anything you want. Anything you want. You just pray don't doubt and God will give it to you and that's not what's being said and then as though that's not enough what is the last word the last words on forgiveness that is what is supposed to mark us as the people of God so we've got at least four things here actually five that people get wrong the triumphal entry you know, that's people were thinking a different story than what Jesus was okay you have the cursing of the fig tree the cleansing of the temple. And then Jesus speaks of having faith. And then we conveniently forget the last one about forgiveness. The word of God is to be treated with respect. Okay. Um, We can't use it for our own ends. If we do, we could take a verse here, a verse there, put them together and come up with something that is not biblical. You're like, well, it's in the Bible. That verse is in the Bible. Yeah, what is the context? What came before? What comes after? What's being said? Um, and, And here, as we come to, we are now in Holy Week, the Passion Week of Jesus. Um, If we're not careful, we'll be like the crowd and we'll miss the point. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for your word and how it conveys to us the truth about Jesus Christ. But we would confess that we don't always treat it as we should. 
either out of ignorance or deliberately, we, we try to make it say what we want, we want it to say. Forgive us when we've done this. And thank you for your spirit who gives us understanding that the Gospel of Mark or any of the other Gospels is not simply a random collection of verses. There's something being said in a particular way, in a particular context. I thank you for the Lord Jesus. And I'm amazed at his patience as the people cheer for him and he knows that in a few days they will call for his death. And yet he willingly went to the cross for us. He is the king who gave up his life for us. May we think on these things in the days to come and realize the preciousness of what Jesus has done for us. Again, we remember uh, when Nabli and her husband Jerry, during this time, for Dan and Lonnie as well, bring them peace and comfort. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.